the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. It's Monday, and that means you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as always, we're anxious to take your phone calls, hoping that we can answer your Bible questions. 340-9585 is our phone number for your calls. 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. You can send them in there as well. Uh, Additionally, if you're driving in your car, the safest way for you to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, We'd love to have your questions and comments. 340-9585. Before we get into the questions, uh, Monday, uh, tonight, uh, because it's Monday, uh, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. Jocelyn uh, Makasadi will be teaching the ladies, Pastor Ken the men, uh, Pastor Nelly the high school age youth, and Chris Sanchez will be teaching the junior high school age kids. You know what that means? It means your whole family can come to church and be in the Word of God tonight, worshiping together, then going their separate ways in the uh, in the building here and and uh, hearing from the Word of God. I think that's a great way to spend a family evening. Um, before we get into the questions, um, I I want to talk about the Super Bowl a little bit, not uh, about the game so much, although it was really a good game. Um, I want to talk about um, what we watched yesterday. Uh, just the whole spectacle, the whole event. Uh, my message yesterday out of Romans chapter 13 was in large part um, our continuing obligation to love people uh, in light of the present time, uh, the urgency that the end is near, that Jesus will be returning soon. And just for the audience, now when I say these kind of things to my church, they know what I mean, but but maybe you don't. I don't mean that Jesus is coming this week or next week or even next year. Um, but what I mean is he's coming suddenly and that there's nothing else that has to happen before Jesus comes for his bride, for the for the church. Uh, we call it the rapture of the church and Jesus will be coming soon. And we were asked yesterday in Romans chapter 13 by the Apostle Paul, actually we were urged by Paul, uh, to understand that the end is near, that the, the night is nearly over, the, the deeds of darkness that rule the night, and the daytime when everything will be exposed, everything can be seen clearly, is at hand. Uh, I told our church yesterday that it's hard to make Christians believe that and understand it. You know, we have a tendency like those scoffers that Peter mentioned in his epistle to say things like, oh, you know, you've been saying this for 2,000 years. Where is this coming that you've spoken of? Remember, Peter called them scoffers. And he said, um... God's not slack concerning his promise. He's patient, unwilling that any should perish. And yesterday's Super Bowl, again, the whole spectacle, was a great illustration. 
the way I introduced our study yesterday was to talk about a, a light. I walk with Jesus really early in the morning on Sundays, and it's still dark outside. There's one house on, I live on a pretty dark street. There's one house that has this huge, huge bright light. And I always look forward to that light. Well, yesterday when I was walking with Jesus, he said to me, he spoke to my heart, he said, you know, that's the light I intend for Christians to be in these last days. Like our dark streets yesterday morning walking, the world that we live in is dark. It seems at times, though we know it's not true by faith, that the enemy is winning. But these are the kind of things that the Apostle Paul said would happen in the last days, the the last of the last days. And when I saw that really, really bright light, it's just a few houses up the street from me, and the Lord spoke again in my heart. He said, that's the kind of light in the darkness I want Christians to be. Well, that was um, me asking him about what he wanted to do with the study yesterday and how he wanted me to introduce it. Well, yesterday we saw the darkness. Uh, a lot of people watch the Super Bowl game as much for the commercials as they do for anything else. And what we saw in the commercials, not not every commercial, but most of them, and with a wide variety of products that were being advertised, products that made no sense with the message the commercials were sending, it was these corporations from Coca-Cola to uh, Tide to um, um, Jeep, uh, and, and and other commercials, and, and they were talking about the diversity and inclusivity of the world that we live in and lauding it as though it were a great thing. Um, I wasn't keeping track, but there were at least a half a dozen of those commercials that specifically mentioned um, that they were celebrating the right to love who you want to love, obviously. Um, a shout-out for those who are involved in gay relationships, celebrating it, making those of us who don't believe that that's right, who don't believe that it's the Word of God, leaving us to feel like we're sort of behind the rest of the world, as our former president used to say, on the wrong side of history. Well, you can't be on the wrong side of history if you're with Jesus. And over and over and over and over, there were these messages, including feminism, And all I told Paula, I said, Paula, I wish I'd seen this series of commercials before the message yesterday morning. Because what great illustrations of the darkness that we live in. There was no mention of Jesus Christ. There was no mention of doing what is right before God. There was just a constant bombarding of doing what is right. You know the theme of the book of Judges. Israel's worst time in history, by the way, is that it was a time when men did what seemed right to them. Well, we live in that time right here in this country. And all that darkness. And then we got to the end of the game. And I saw that light. Just like the light in my dark street, I saw that light. The most valuable player, the winning quarterback of the Eagles, is a pretty radical Christian. The, the the franchise quarterback that he replaced is also a very, very public Christian, very grounded and mature in his faith, and has been that way uh, all the way through his college years. But when they interviewed the winning coach yesterday, I had no idea he was a Christian. And they asked him the question, he said, well, you know, before I say anything, I need to give all glory and honor to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know, the announcers always try to change the subject really quickly, get him back on track. But, but these were men who were giving glory to God. Not just some vague God, but Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. And with more than 100 million people watching yesterday's Super Bowl, those athletes, and it wasn't just the, the three of them that I mentioned, there were others in, in their conversations. They were giving glory to God. They were being that light in the middle of darkness. So we had those two polar opposites, the darkness that was presented in the commercials. I don't know what makes people think that we're going to buy products when they offend those of us who know and love Jesus Christ. But it seems that the celebration of sin and of evil is more important, even more urgent to the world that we live in 
that honoring Jesus Christ is to the people of God. But oh, how refreshing it was to see that light that shined through. You know, the Philadelphia Eagles had a very public team baptism at a hotel earlier this year, late last season, I don't remember which, but this is a team that Jesus is really moving in and through. Makes me glad that they won. They had the, the opportunity to, to, to declare their faith. But what an example that was of darkness and then others taking the opportunity to be the light that Paul tells us to be in Romans chapter 13. The entire chapter, by the way. So I'll close this entrance. I don't normally do any kind of a monologue like this. But let me just say that as Christians, it's our job to spread light, to be light. Not just be a private Christian, but to be light. And God bless those on the Philadelphia Eagles who took the opportunity to be that light yesterday. I'm really, really, really grateful. Not to mention it was a great message for uh, or a great follow-up to the message that I did yesterday on Communion Sunday. Okay, I bored you enough. 340-9585. Let's go to Cibolo, Texas and talk with John on line one. John, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you very much for your opening remarks there. I just feel like I've been in church. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I couldn't agree more. Um, I have two questions, if you have the time. Uh, my first question is in regards to King Saul and Solomon. Both of them, at the end of their lives, did so much evil and destruction. I just wonder, do you think we will see them in heaven? And what's your second question, John? The second question is regarding King Saul when he went to the witch and uh, asked her to to speak with Samuel. And I believe that the Bible indicates that she did that, and I just don't understand why God allowed that to happen. And if you could just comment on that. I, I've read that many times and always yeah. wondered... And it just doesn't make any sense to me. I can do that, John. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate uh, uh, the questions, but I also appreciate your kind thoughts. Uh, a couple of things. One, we, we've been studying in First Samuel. We just started Second Samuel now. So all of this, of course, is really familiar to me. Um, let me answer the second question first because it's pretty easy. Um, the Witch of Endor in First Samuel was uh, the most surprised person in that room when Samuel appeared. Now remember what God was allowing Samuel to do was pronounce judgment. It was 15 years earlier that Samuel pronounced judgment on Saul. And when uh, King Saul, who could no longer talk to God because of his unrepentant sin, because of his hard heart, uh, at the end of his life he deteriorated to the point where he was um, um, seeking counsel from a witch a spiritist, they called them. Um, but what, what he was doing was pronouncing judgment. So Samuel was permitted by God, not at the behest of the woman. The woman was a, a, a fraud. She she was a phony, and when, when it really was Samuel, she knew that, that Samuel, or that Saul, rather, had tricked her, and she thought she would now be put to death. But God allowed Samuel to come to pronounce judgment. So this was an act of judgment. You remember Samuel was troubled. Why are you bothering me? And um, God allowed, um, sometimes he allows us to have what we want. Uh, Saul said, call up Samuel. Well, what he thought he wanted wasn't what he got. What he got was a declaration of judgment. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. That doesn't mean in paradise. He was just referencing that they would be in the grave, that that would be the day that they die. So, um, you know, we're forbidden to talk to the dead. Um, but because Saul wanted it, God allowed it to happen. And what he uh, heard would have made Saul wish that he never asked to hear uh, from Samuel again. So uh, it was just God allowing that one circumstance 
uh, to make a pronunciation of judgment upon King Saul. Uh, with regard to the other question, uh, I can tell you uh, definitively um, that uh, we will not see Saul in heaven. Uh, Saul was proven repeatedly over and over and over not to have the heart of God or a heart for God at all. Uh, though he started well and though he was used by God, I mean, he was the king of Israel, the first king, the, the, the king that the people wanted, John. Though he was um, used by God, he, he never belonged to God. Uh, he never surrendered his heart. And the real Saul was exposed. And throughout the book of 1 Samuel, uh, we see Saul coming to a, an inglorious end, so we won't see him at all. Now, Solomon, on the other hand, is different. Uh, Solomon not only did a lot of evil, um, Solomon um, squandered the greatest of gifts that God gave him. Remember when Solomon was just taking over for his father David and he was young and, and God says, okay, uh, this was just a test. Solomon asked for anything you want. And because Solomon asked for wisdom, the idea here was, well, I'm just a child. Who am I to lead so great a people? I need your help. I can't do it without you. And God said, because you didn't ask for money and because you didn't ask for power, but because you asked for wisdom, I will give you wisdom as no other man will ever have, not before you nor after you. That means Solomon, the smartest man that's ever walked the face of the earth. Um, Solomon was creative. Solomon uh, was a scientist. Solomon was a, 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 a master of the language. Uh, we have the examples of those things uh, in the books that he wrote. Um, but God said, I'm also going to give you the wealth and the power you need, and your life will be blessed. Now, he squandered it all. Now, here's how we know, John, that Solomon will be in heaven. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon as an old man. Uh, not long before he died, and it was a, a, a book, um, remember these are all poetic books, it was a book that was written, um, Solomon reflecting on his life, uh, not unlike his father David when he wrote the 23rd Psalm, an old man looking back and reflecting on the goodness and the faithfulness of God, even when he wasn't good or when he wasn't faithful. Well, Solomon explains in Ecclesiastes, that what he's done is he's denied himself no pleasure. Uh, he looked for all of the answers. He looked for wisdom. He looked for for fun, just pure um, uh, immoral fun. Uh, he, he pursued things that had nothing to do with God. And the, the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is that all of it was for nothing. And he gets to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes and basically says, you know, everything that I ever did that wasn't for God and didn't include God was vanity, meaningless, a chasing of the wind. And the book of Ecclesiastes is actually Solomon's repentance for living a life, squandering a life that was wasted when in fact he could have been used by God in the most spectacular ways. So yes, he violated all of the rules. He had a thousand women in his life. He multiplied horses, which means that he stopped trusting God and started trusting in his own military strength. Uh, he allowed um, idol-worshipping women to become his wives and influence him to some degree to, to allow those idols even in his own home. But at the end, because God is faithful, he turned back to the Lord and we'll see Solomon in heaven, there's no doubt. By the way, John, that, that promise was given to David regarding Solomon as well. So I hope that answers your question, John. Thank you for holding. I know you're on the line for quite some time. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Nacho. Um, he says, yesterday in your sermon in Romans 13, you said that there are no more prophecies that need to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. I did say that. And then he says, how do we categorize what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, when he describes what the end times look like? Would that not be prophetic in nature? Uh, not you. It, it is prophetic in nature. When Paul is at the end of his life, he's... he's um, um, giving this message to Timothy. And basically what he's saying in the passage that you uh, asked about was 
uh, Timothy, mark this, in the last days there will be perilous times, and then he describes the very time uh, that we live in. Now, to, to some degree, Nacho, the world has always been like that. And I'm not even suggesting that the world is more like that now than it was before. But yes, what Paul was saying was prophetic, but remember, he said that 2,000 years ago, or nearly 2,000 years ago. So he was describing the times of the very end. And all of those things that he said uh, about the very last days are things that we're going to be, or, or things that we're dealing with. I made a reference to that with the Super Bowl commercials yesterday. That, that's the time that we live in. You know, yesterday in the message, Nacho, if you were here and heard it, you know, I was talking about Isaiah chapter 5. The same kind of time occurred in Israel just before judgment, before Israel was plunged into judgment, first by Assyria and then by Babylon. And he said, we live in a time where good is called evil and evil is called good, a time when men dragged their sin along behind them in the public streets with cords of deceit. In other words, we're proud of our sin instead of being ashamed or embarrassed by our sin. Well, we live in that time now to perhaps an even greater degree. And I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is coming soon, and when he comes, this world, including the United States, will be plunged into judgment. And when we're plunged into judgment, it will be a judgment more horrible than anything that's ever been or ever will come again. And all because people reject Jesus Christ. So it is entirely prophetic in nature. What's really important about it, Nacho, is that these are the last words Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. He knew that he was about to die. He said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished my race. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, not only for me, but all who love the Lord's soon appearing. So um, what he was saying is, Timothy, you've got work to do. Here's what it's going to look like. And as I've said several times today already, we live in that time. So it is prophetic. Uh, we are fulfilling it. The one thing I want to caution you, not you and everybody else from, is um, we have a tendency here in America, especially to, to sort of view the end-time scenarios in the United States as being crucial uh, to those end-time scenarios. There, there's, there's no role for the United States of America in the end times. There's just no role. And so uh, we need to think globally. We need to think on a much larger scale because we see these things happening in our country. Um, I know Christians have thought that Jesus was going to come when gay marriage was legalized by the Supreme Court um, a couple of Junes ago. Um, Biblical prophecies, not about, has nothing to do with the United States. What Paul said about the prophetic nature of the last days, all we have to do is look around and we can see the signs that are all here. So I hope that answers your question. How are we doing on time? Let me see. We're inside four minutes. Let me get a four-minute question. Here is a question from a mobile app, Anonymous. Some believers have an issue with the modern-day peace sign because, because some see it with older satanic origins. Is it okay for a believer to like and or display the symbol? Um, anonymous, no. It's, there's nothing wrong with displaying the symbol. There's nothing wrong with liking the symbol. Um, you're probably not as old as I am, but the peace sign was like uh, our calling card in the old hippie days back in the late 60s and early 70s. And, you know, God's not really into symbols. God knows what's in the heart. And I can speak for most hippies of that day. When we put peace, man, we, we held up the two-finger sign. Uh, we wanted peace. We really wanted peace. So God's not really into symbols, nor, nor should we be. Um, the fact that something has satanic origins, uh, and I'm not even sure that the modern-day peace sign does, but the fact that it has... Uh, older uh, satanic origins means nothing. God can redeem anything and everything for his glory, and I'm living proof of that. I had 
satanic origins as well. And then Jesus found me and redeemed me. Uh, and, um, and, and now he uses me. So, uh, no, I don't think there's any problem at all with liking or displaying the symbol. I have seen, in fact, I'm sorry, I have seen, in fact, a lot of Christian t-shirts with the peace sign and it says, no Jesus, N-O Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, K-N-O-W, Jesus, peace. And see, those are uh, good opportunities to um, to tell people about our faith. I like the idea that people wear Christian t-shirts and the messages on them because a lot of people ask about them. So, Anonymous, I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for our live call. We're inside a minute, so I won't have time for the question. Ladies, let me remind you once more that our women's retreat is coming up March 8th through the 10th. Um, we're getting crowded, so if you're interested in going, we'd love to have you. You will be blessed, I promise you. 340-9585, or you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. In case you didn't catch it, March 8th is a Thursday. It's Thursday through Saturday at about noon. Okay, we got 30 minutes left in our Monday program, 340-9585. You're listening to The Word to Stand for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our monday program 340-9585 for your live calls or toll free 877-630-KSLR i apologize i had a something catching my throat and I started coughing but I think I'm okay now here's a question from our mobile app from John he says Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 verse 14 says until we acquire possession of it does that mean when we die Uh, and John says he loves me thank you John I appreciate it very very much um it doesn't mean that at all. That's the Revised Standard Version. That's the only one that, that actually said that. Um, but, but what Paul is saying there is that the Holy Spirit's been given to us. Verse 14, who is a deposit. The Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So I think that's a better translation of verse 14 in chapter 1. And what it means is until we are his. Now, it could be when we die and we go to be with Jesus, John, or it could mean during the rapture of the church. So um, the whole import there is that we are secure in our salvation, having been given the Holy Spirit, so that while we are here on this world, in this in this world, God doesn't want us um, to question our salvation. He doesn't want us to be afraid of losing our salvation. What he's saying is that this is a guarantee. Now, one of the big questions, John, that we get all the time here on the program is about can we lose our salvation? There are people who believe you can lose it, you can give it away. Well, well, this verse is pretty clear and is pretty definitive in saying that the Holy Spirit, who is God, has been given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing. That's a very strong word in the Greek. It means it's ironclad. So the person who says, well, but but we can lose our salvation, we walk away from our salvation, not if the guarantor is any good. Now, I can guarantee things, and my guarantee is only as good as my ability to keep the promise, but this is God himself making the, pro- the promise. Jesus said, it's good for you that I go away, talking to his disciples in the other room just before his crucifixion. Because if I go, I'll send another and, and the, the Greek there is another me. 
same character, same nature, same power, just different in, in the sense that it won't be in, in physicality. And he will be in you and with you always until the end of the age. So what Paul is doing in writing to the Ephesians, and remember that this is the church that he spent the most time in. He was in Ephesus for more than three years. And he wanted them to understand these people that he knew and loved. This wasn't like his letter to the Romans. He didn't know the, the, the church at Rome. But this was his church. He was sort of the, the founding pastor of the church. And he wanted them to know that this guarantee is rock solid. And that's what I want people to know, too, whenever we talk about these things. Now, the question always comes, and John, I know this isn't your question, but the question always arises, well, what about people who walk away from Jesus? It happens all the time. Or people who said they were saved, and I saw fruit, and they were excited about Jesus, and they just sort of fizzled out, or they faded away. Well, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 13 that explains that. He even gives the definition of that parable. There's all kinds of soil. You know, we Christians, we're, we're to scatter seed, which is the word of God. And sometimes it falls on people and it appears that they received it, but once trouble or persecution comes, the worries and cares of this world choke it out, making it unfruitful. Others, it falls on very shallow soil. I call these emotional Christians. And it springs up really quickly because of the, the, the warmth of the sun and yet the soil is shallow and then it burns away. Well, people that say they're saved and walk away from Jesus completely prove that they're not nor were they ever, unless they come back. Jesus, in talking about his disciples, John said to his father, Father, I've lost none that you've given me. Well, the same thing is true now. Those who are real converts are squarely in the hand of God the Father and God the Son and protected by and empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And we have that as a guarantee. So um, when we receive the goal of our salvation, when we are with Jesus, believe me, that's the goal of our salvation. When we are with Jesus, then and only then, John, do we realize the glory that awaits all of us. And the Holy Spirit will be right there and he'll be saying, told you. So that's what it means. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to line one. Tanya from San Leandro, California. Tanya, thanks for calling again. How are you doing? Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm doing great. We're having beautiful weather. It's 74 degrees. It's I couldn't ask Ooh. for a better day. <laughs> I, I'm it's jealous. It's cold lovely. here again. I know. I, I heard. I heard. Um, a couple things. One is um, if you would uh, let us know uh, your prayer request. I'd like to make sure I'm remembering to lift up you in the congregation in prayer um, in my time with the Lord every day. And then secondly, Pastor Ron, I have um, I have some confusion about the term pagan. Um, I know in some versions of the Bible the term is mentioned, but I don't I have used the new King James. So is it is that a, a group of people or is it a practice? I'm really confused on the term pagan because I hear you know Christians say, well, these are pagan holidays and you shouldn't I'm really confused and I'm hoping you can <laughs> you can help me with that. I can do that, Tanya. Thank you very much. Give my love to your family, Thank please. Thank you, Pastor. I will. Okay. I will. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Pagan is just a reference, Tanya, to um, ungodly people, ungodly things. Um, um, you know, sometimes the reference in, in some translations to Gentiles or to Greeks, um, barbarians in the Old Testament, um, uh, the Tower of Babel, um, uh, all those reference to pagans are, are those people who do not desire to worship God, uh, idol worshipers, people that are given over to the world. A pagan lifestyle is a lifestyle that denies the, the existence of or cares nothing about the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. So when we see something uh, is pagan, it's decidedly anti-God. It's in opposition to God. Uh, John uses the term in his letters of antichrist. These things are antichrist. So that's the reference to pagans. 
it's just a reference to to those who hate God. Now, remember, we were all pagans, and God is in the practice of redeeming pagans, and so he does that with holidays as well. The argument that you shouldn't celebrate Christmas, or you shouldn't celebrate birthdays, or you shouldn't celebrate Easter because these had their origins in pagan holidays means absolutely nothing. Everything in our world, since the fall in the Garden of Eden, everything in our world has origins in paganism. Again, anti-God, anti-Christ. But God redeems them. I want you to think about something. We got Easter coming up on April 1st, and, and Palm Sunday, of course, the Sunday before that in March. Um, does it really matter how or where they originated or by whom when, in fact, on that day the whole world knows about and continues to hear about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has simply taken those um, people, those practices, and reclaimed them for his glory. And if you think about it, Tanya, that's what everybody does. Um, um, he, he takes people like you and me. In, in the, the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul says, after describing this lifestyle of sin, he goes, and such were some of you, but you have been redeemed. So don't worry about the pagan origins and just be grateful and and in awe, really, that God can take that which is pagan and make something really, really good out of it. So uh, that's all they mean. And, and Tanya, don't don't uh, don't enter in arguments with people. There are some who are, uh, according to Paul in Romans chapter 14, and by the way, that's where I'm starting this coming Sunday. Um weak brothers and sisters. They tend toward legalism and, you know, they can't understand these kind of things. Well, if it was pagan, it should stay pagan. We should stay away from it. Um, so we don't argue with them. We just don't stumble them. And we walk in and enjoy the freedom that the Lord has given us. So that's all that means. Ten you my prayer requests. Um, oh, I've got so many, but, but let me just give you a couple. Um, we're in real trouble here at Calvary Chapel, <laughs> San Antonio. Um, we've got so many people showing up and so much going on that um, we just don't have any space for anybody anymore. You should have seen this place yesterday. It was like a fire and hill. And um, I mean, that's a good thing. I'm not complaining. It's a wonderful problem to have. But we really need a big building. Um, that requires money. We don't have any. Everything we do here, as you know, Tanya, is free. Um, and when you're spending more money than you're bringing in, we can't get more people in to get more money because they can't fit. Um, so we just need a, a big place. I had to stand up before the congregation yesterday and uh, and, and tell them that uh, the place where we, we rent it on Easter Sunday, uh, every year, Jetson High School, the Performing Arts Center there, it's a great place, but they threw us a loop this year. And uh, they're not going to let us in there on the Saturday before Easter to, to set up the sound and do all the things we need to do, which takes an entire day. And so I had to tell them this year, because of that, um, we're not going to be able to have our choir and our orchestra. And I hate to tell people who want to serve that they can't serve. Um, yesterday, we had our fifth birthday uh, from Alta Medical. That's our free medical um, offices. Um, I was told on, on Saturday that... that in, in our five years, um, Malta Medical has seen over 20,000 patients. That's a staggering number to me. And, of course, the doctors said the thing that they need the most is more space. We need more doctors. Um, we've just opened our free Christian school uh, up for, for enrollment for next school year. And we've got a waiting list that's so long and... You know, we, we can't fit any more kids in because we don't have more space. And I hate turning people away. So first and foremost, and God knows these things, but we would appreciate prayer for provision. Uh, God has also told me, Tanya, that we're not to borrow money, uh, not to mortgage a building. So we're kind of stuck in the place of waiting for him to do something. And so we would appreciate your prayers for that. Uh, I'm getting old, so I would appreciate prayer for health for me and for Paula, who is not getting old. I need to say that clearly. But um, just at our health, we, we want to go out flaming. We want to finish better than we started. And so my prayer is always that, that um, I would never take it easy. 
I would never soften the message that I would continue to be faithful delivering the word of God as directly as it can. So, Tanya, thank you. Those are the two most pressing uh, prayer needs right now. Bless you. Let's go to Lavernia, Texas, and talk with Bill on line two. Bill, thanks for holding and being patient. You're on the air. Yes, sir, Ron. Hey, a blessing to you and yours. Uh, I just wanted to uh, ask a question about not full-on Calvinism, Calvinism, but the doctrine of election as told in, like, Ephesians. I can't remember what it was, a 4-2 or 3-2. Those that were of the elect, uh, God chosen. Mm-hmm. Versus uh, uh, John three sixteen for God so loved all in respect mm-hmm. to the God being the uh, maker of all in time and uh, and whatnot has no revelation from Him uh, how all that all kind of ties together uh, and, and where where you stand on that? Okay, I can do that, Bill. Thank you very very much. Um, Bill, if you're a Calvinist, if you believe in the doctrine of of um, limited atonement, if you believe in um, the Calvinistic view of God's sovereignty, uh, you're all in whether you know it or not. So uh, what we have to do is we have to really, really focus on what the Bible says about it. Let me also recommend to you, if you get some time, uh, you can go to my Bible studies that we did in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, where I deal with the doctrine of election exclusively. All our stuff is free online at calvaryessay.com. So uh, you can get as much information as you want to on um, the, the doctrine of election. Now, what, what Paul says about election in Ephesians, now remember what I said just to an earlier question, that Paul was with the church in Ephesus for three years, a little more than three years. So they would already know these things, so he only makes a reference to the elect according to the will of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, also, Peter, in First Peter chapter 1, the first two verses, also talks about election, but he talks about election on the basis of how the choice is made. Now, nobody can dispute that, that election or predestination is a biblical doctrine. The arguments out there from those who are Calvinists, from those who are, are on the other end of the spectrum, is the basis upon which God chooses. It is true, Bill, that God chooses who is going to be saved. That does not mean that he also chooses those who are going to spend eternity in hell. And the Calvinist doctrine says, well, if God chooses some for heaven, he must choose others for hell, and those that aren't chosen for heaven have no say-so in the matter. But as you pointed out, Jesus himself said, for God so loved the world. Not the elect, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever, he didn't say the chosen, that whosoever would believe would not perish and have eternal life. Now, here's what we have to understand. And this, I'm going to make this as simple as I can because it's really important. The basis of God's choice, and I'll use me as an example. I got saved in 1991. Until 1991, I hated God. I lived like I hated God. In spite of my wife's 13 years of prayer for me, I, I actually lived like I hated her, though I would have told her that I loved her. And all of that, because God knew that I was going to be saved in 1991, all of those horrible things I did couldn't convince God to change his mind about loving me. From the beginning of the foundation of the world, he set his love upon me because he knew on that day in February in 1991, I was going to be his. We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. We weren't chosen arbitrarily. God wouldn't choose somebody that God knows because God lives outside of time and space. Uh, the, the future is as the past to God. So God wouldn't choose somebody and make him or her come to heaven against their will if God knows they're not going to receive him. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Why are few chosen? Because God knows that many are going to be on that wide road to destruction. So please rest assured, Bill, that that everybody has an equal opportunity. I had somebody come to me uh, during one of the Romans studies and say, well, 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 how do I know if I'm chosen? And I said, well, did you give your life to Jesus Christ? And he said, no. And I said, well, then apparently you're not chosen, at least today. But then I always say this, you can be chosen right now. Just ask Jesus into your heart. Well, I'm not ready to do that. Well, I guess you're not chosen today. 
You see, God doesn't cause us to make the choice we make. He just knows the choice we're going to make. And believe me, Bill, if I couldn't change God's mind about loving me, then nobody could change God's mind about loving him, uh, about loving them, because God's love is, when it's set upon us, it's immovable. So yes, election is a biblical doctrine, but the basis upon election is God's foreknowledge. One other comment, this is very important. Nowhere in Scripture is election referred to in any other way except as it relates to salvation. Never once are the elect said to be going to hell because they were chosen to go to hell. Election is a wonderful doctrine. I don't know why God chose me, but I'm thrilled that he did. I know that though I couldn't change his mind, I tried. But that demonstrates the the infinite depth of God's love. So be careful of Calvinism. It's not a heretical doctrine. But be careful because it is a joy killer. I, I've actually had Calvinist Bill come to me and say, well, you know, because I don't know who's chosen, I can't tell everybody in honesty that God loves them because if God didn't choose them, he didn't love them. Esau I hated. By the way, when you get to that passage in the Romans tapes, or Romans uh, um, on, online, um, listen carefully because there were reasons that God chose Jacob over Esau. What was the reason? Well, God knew that Esau would sell him for a bowl of stew. God knew that Jacob, though problematic, God knew that Jacob would love him eventually. And he did. So, Bill, that's the doctrine of election in a nutshell. Uh, lots of good stuff, I think, on the on the Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11 teachings that we did. A bunch of teachings there, too, by the way. Thank you, Bill. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Craig. He says, if I seek God's kingdom first, will all the other things be added unto me? Uh, Will that include wealth? Let me read the passage because you need to know the context of what he's saying. Jesus, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is saying, Verse 31, Matthew 6. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And then he says this, this famous verse. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. So what he's talking about is committing your heart to Jesus and serving. Well, how am I going to make a living? Jesus said, if you're walking with me, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. I'm going to take care of you. And then he says, here's the key. Seek me first. Seek my kingdom first. Your father, my father knows you need these things. And if you put me first, these things will be added. Um, One of the problems with this passage of scripture is that um, prosperity teachers pervert it. God wants you to be rich. He wants you to be wealthy. Greg, I, I hope I'm not misreading the question. If the reason you want to follow Jesus is to get wealthy, you don't understand what Jesus has done for you. Remember the rich young ruler? He already had it. And because he wanted to keep it, Jesus said, here's what you have to do to gain eternal life. Sell all those things, give it to the poor, and follow me. And he didn't want to either follow Jesus nor sell his things and give it to the poor. And the Bible says he walked away sad. If you're seeking God as a means to get rich or to be successful, then you're missing the whole point of what Jesus did. It's a very dangerous pernicious doctrine, this prosperity gospel. Um, Avoid it and seek Jesus. I promise you, you will never be disappointed. Okay, we're inside three minutes. Boy, this half went really, really quickly. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, did Jephthah sacrifice his daughter? 
Um, anonymous people have been arguing about that for a very, very long time. But in the book of Judges, if you um, study the context, if you look very closely, uh, what we're told is though Jephthah made a foolish, Jephthah was a judge, a deliverer in, in Israel. And about after coming back from a, a victory, he, or he before going to war, he said, if you give me success, I'll sacrifice the first thing that I see when I get home to you. And, and after the great victory, his daughter comes out of the house. Then what the story tells us, Anonymous, is that she asked for some time to go mourn because she would never be married. It's unthinkable that Jephthah would have literally sacrificed his daughter in the fire. God wouldn't have let him do it at that point. Um, but what he did is he sacrificed her future. He kept his vow, and his daughter knew that he had to do it. So basically she was committed to being the Lord's the rest of her life. She would never marry. She would never have children. She would miss out on a lot of things that that uh, other girls uh, looked forward to as they grew up, and, and she simply wouldn't have that opportunity because of this foolish vow. The lesson there isn't that, that we should give everything to the Lord and close ourselves off from the world. The, the lesson is that we who are believers should watch what we say because God takes everything that we say seriously. God, if you get me out of this one, I'll go to church. I'll never miss. God, if you get me out of this one, I'll, I'll, I'll be nicer. Uh, I'll follow you all the rest of my life. Don't say those kind of things until you can say them with integrity, until you can say them with a clear heart. So Jephthah sacrifices his daughter's future, putting her future in the hands of God, but almost certainly he did not sacrifice his daughter. Final piece of evidence, Anonymous. Jephthah is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, and it's unthinkable that he would be singled out if he would have sacrificed his daughter. That would have been the most ungodly thing that he could have done. So I hope that helps. Oops, well, there's some music. I thought I had time for one more question. I don't. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Remember, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. Whole families can come together. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.